Last Sunday, for the first time in probably about 15 years, I attended a service of worship in my childhood church, the Church of the Nazarene in Midland Valley, South Carolina. A lot has changed in that church since I was a kid. When I was there, the church still sang hymns using the Nazarene hymnal. Now, like so many churches, the words are projected onto the walls. And the music, the music was dramatically different. It was, what's the word I'm looking for? Loud. A kaleidoscope of lights ran along the octagonal-shaped building, which had been painted various shades of gray, as a full ensemble of piano, drums, and guitars, along with trumpet and clarinet, which seemed somehow to go well together, energized the congregation in choruses of praise. I stood there amidst this technicolor array of lights and sounds, singing lyrics that were littered with a word that's forbidden in our home, my, that most dangerous of possessive nouns. And it was then that I was truly grateful to be an Episcopalian. Now, so that my mother-in-law, who is watching online, doesn't call me later to complain about how I have painted a disparaging picture of the Church of the Nazarene, there is something else that I witnessed, something altogether paradoxical, something that moved me to tears. The preacher that day shared with us his dream, a dream he had received as a call from God to begin an arts program that would serve the entire community of that valley and to do so as a witness to the creator God who created us to be creative. He went on to say that the church, which once was the center of the arts across the globe, had conceded the arts to secular society, to those who have little or no regard for beauty as a gift of God, a gift given so that we might glorify God and enjoy God forever. While the worship service left me less than excited that I had gone to church, I had heard the gospel that day preached from the heart of one who loves God to a people who were obviously in love with Jesus. He spoke God, and we all heard God speaking. Our lectionary readings today are all about speaking God beginning with one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Job 38. Job, as you may recall, has lost everything. And his closest and dearest friends have come to help him come to terms with the calamities that have befallen him. In one form, in one form or another, they tell Job, just admit it. Just admit that you sinned against God Ask God to forgive you, and he'll restore your life. And Job, who up to this very crucial point has spoken only about himself, in so doing, he spoke as one who loves God deeply. He then speaks not as a lover, but Job's friends from whom must come that saying with friends like these who needs enemies. 
they had worn him down. And then Job speaks not for himself as a lover of God, but Job speaks for God, saying, that's not who God is. That's not how God acts. And then from the whirlwind in Job chapter 38, we hear God addressing Job saying, who are you? Who is this that darkens counsel and words without knowledge? Isn't that a fabulous line? Who are you that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? I want to say that to lots of people. (laughs) Tell me, says God, where were you? Where were you when I founded the earth, Job? Where were you present when I made the light? When I breathed life into the world? When I divided earth and sea and made the clouds send forth rain? Were you there when I made the plants and animals and gave wisdom to the cosmos? Well, says God, who are you? And 73 verses later, God gives Job the chance to respond. And Job, realizing that pride had gotten the best of him, he musters up the humility and wisdom to say in response to God's question, who are you? And it's the only appropriate response possible And Job says, I don't know. And then in chapter 40, Job says to God, I have nothing to say. I put my hand over my mouth. I suspect many of us would benefit from such wisdom. Later, we realize that Job has not spoken falsely about God. Everything Job had said, God tells his frenemies that Job has spoken truthfully. Job's misstep, however, is that he presumed to speak for God. He spoke from pride, not from love. How we speak is what we say. How we speak is what we say. On Monday, after visiting my parents' church, I drove to Canuga, the Episcopal Retreat Center outside of Hendersonville, North Carolina. You know, that part of the world where God lives. I was among my fellow Episcopalians who had come together to talk about how we are to do spiritual formation in the church today, given the dramatic flux that's been going on in our world especially. And I had gone to make connections, to learn something new, to learn from those who make their days all the time thinking and reflecting and practicing how we do spiritual formation. Little did I know that I would find myself once again singing songs projected on a screen, holding hands in a prayer circle, sharing my thoughts and feelings, and having strangers hug and kiss me like I was the dearest of friends. This is the sort of event I lose sleep over. No one there seemed to be following the six feet away rule. Nevertheless, I played along, hoping to learn, hoping to grow, and what I found was another group of weirdos who also loved God and spoke God as lovers. 
It was hilarious. <laughs> it was one of the clearest examples of something Annie Dillard once said. The gospel will make you odd. And these people were odd. And there I was, becoming odd with them. At the closing Eucharist on Thursday, I found myself once again welling up with tears as the unmistakable presence of the Holy Spirit was widening my heart. I experienced with my new oddball friends the humble confidence that rests upon us when we speak not about God as strangers and not for God as self-righteous believers, but speak with the confidence of lovers who speak God as one requiring no defense, non-anxious, even when we might find ourselves with Job surrounded by chaos, so that we with Job might proclaim, yet I will trust God. This trust is not easy to come by. We meet the disciples today at sea, caught in a windstorm that was filling the boat with water, and worn out from a long day of preaching the gospel to what Mark describes as the largest crowd ever. Jesus is lying down in the boat, fast asleep, perhaps floating on the water that's filling their small vessel. As the winds and rains terrify the disciples, Jesus, they cry out, don't you care about us? I can imagine many a preacher today condemning the disciples for their lack of faith. Yet how many of us, in both hard times and in times trivial, have cried out to God, don't you care? Any honest believers in the room? I was with my dad this week. I suspect the next time I see him, he will have forgotten who I am. This one who taught me how to love God, who loves God with all his heart, is daily losing his ability to remember. And I found myself asking God, don't you care? I know that God cares. but I want no less for him to show it. And I don't think I'm alone in that desire. Jesus says to the wind and sea, calm yourselves down. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, calm yourselves down. 
And as Mark recounts, the disciples say to each other, Who is this man? My biggest takeaway from this past week, and I can't look at Amanda because she keeps making me cry. My biggest takeaway from this time visiting my home church, the conference at Canuga, and the time I have with my parents is captured in the words of that great Anglican missionary to India who said, expect great things from God and try, attempt great things for God. William Carey, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. God wants to do great things in us. God wants to do great things with us and through us. Yet we are so often afraid. Afraid of the cost. Afraid of the unknown. Afraid we won't be prepared. Afraid we might drown. That God doesn't care. Afraid we might become odd. And it is our fear that cripples our faith. We so often worry about what may or may not happen that we fail to attempt anything. We calculate the cost, we assess available resources, and we negotiate our expectations based on what we have, not on who God is making us to be. Yet as St. Paul writes to the Corinthians, we must not receive grace in vain. Now is an acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And Paul then tells the people that it's not easy to follow Jesus. You'll be hungry, afflicted, sleepless, dishonored, even odd. Yet your hearts will widen and grow full. You will become, says Paul later in 2 Corinthians 6, you will become a living sanctuary of God. In short, God will live in you, dwell in you. Expand your heart, says Paul, and expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Do not be afraid. How you speak is what you say. How you pray is what you believe. Expect nothing from God and you will get, well, not very much. Expect great things from God and God will blow your mind. Now is an acceptable time. Let's go be odd with God, shall we?